Would it be possible in today's day and time that a government would incarcerate a million people, blood test them, get their tissue samples, put that in a database, and then sell their organs around the world? Would it be possible that professional doctors would commit such atrocity to extract organs from a live body? Because it's such a huge and unbelievable crime, it's impossible to accept it at the first sight. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said on May 9th, we're concerned by reports of the spread of mass DNA collection to Tibet as an additional form of control and surveillance over the Tibetan population. What if the mass DNA collection in Tibet isn't only about surveillance in a dystopian police state, but has a further disturbing purpose? American company Thermo Fisher Scientific is a key supplier of DNA profiling technology to Chinese police. Our guest today, Ethan Gutman, makes a chilling hypothesis. What if Thermo Fisher has been involved in a process to discover if one person's vital organs could fit into another person's body? Ethan Gutman has revealed shocking information to the world about the killing of Falun Gong practitioners and Uyghurs for their organs in China. The China Tribunal in London in 2019 concluded that for decades prisoners have been killed and their organs sold across the world, including to people in Western countries and the Gulf states. Ethan has travelled across Central Asia to interview survivors of the internment camps in East Turkestan. He has pieced together evidence of connections between disappearances from the prison camps and hospitals and transplant centres in China. In this podcast, he describes how green lanes for organ transfers at airports in East Turkestan appeared at around the same time as the construction of new crematoriums in the same area. This could not be a more sensitive and secretive issue. The research exposing these practices is difficult and dangerous. In 2021, UN rapporteurs warned about the risk that so-called health checks involving DNA collection in the PRC among Uyghurs, Tibetans, House Christians and Falun Gong practitioners are then used to create a living organ database. Thermo Fisher said it stopped selling DNA profiling kits to police in Xinjiang in 2019, but it has provided no such assurances with regard to Tibet. In December, the Congressional Executive Commission on China wrote to Thermo Fisher executives to ask why. A multinational alliance of lawmakers, the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, also publicly called on the company to stop selling supplies to Tibetan authorities. Thermo Fisher wrote that the number of DNA kits it sold to the Tibetan police was not enough for mass collection and therefore the company was confident that the products that we or our distributors have provided are being used for their intended use in Tibet, namely police casework and forensics. The US company has serious questions to answer. Ethan takes up the story from here. China had an exit. It couldn't take it. That exit was blocked. That exit was pharmaceuticals. They have to keep the medical system rolling. 
they have to have a way to reward doctors uh, so they can make real money. This is it. It's, it's not changing. Uh, and everything we've seen from the Chinese is claiming that their transplant volume is just as high as it ever was. And there's a final piece of proof is we're getting this Thermo Fisher business. Um, Thermo Fisher is scientific or Thermo Fisher medical, uh, makes DNA kits. Now they make two kinds of DNA kits. One is the fun kind. It's kind of like, did you know you're part African? <laughs> you know, it's like, do you know you're related to Pocahontas? I mean, okay, whatever. All right, that's one side. Um, this isn't that side. This there's another kind of kit which is really used for organ harvesting and things like that, and for surveillance as well. And the that one is the one we suspect strongly has been sold to the Chinese because they must have bought about 10 million kits to test the Uyghur population back in 2015, 2016. Actually starting in 2014. Through so those two, three years. They, that's a lot of kits. That's a killing. Huge of kits. Yeah, that's a killing in the market. And uh, Thermo Fisher is... In 2019 they said they weren't going to sell them anymore to Xinjiang. Exactly, and so that's, but that's an that's an but that's an admission of guilt right there. Yeah. Okay, the, there was something up with these. These are not just you know, hey, you're related yeah. to, you know. I mean, it's mm -hmm. these aren't the fun kind. Mm -hmm. uh, so they've basically admitted it right by saying that they won't sell them anymore to Xinjiang. Uh, they're not admitting what they're really being used for. They're, they're sort of saying, well, maybe they're being used for surveillance. Which is absolutely true. Things can be used. By the way, China can chew gum and walk at the same time. I mean, they're perfectly capable of using something to say, if you commit a terrorist act, we can hunt down your entire family. That's a legitimate use of surveillance, in fact. It's not actually even completely unreasonable when you think about it. What is unreasonable is to be testing out people to see how their organs would fit in another person's uh, body. Okay, that's their vital organs. That's murder. That's planned murder. Okay? That's very different. And uh, in this case, we know that they have started testing the Tibetans en masse. And we, that's what we know. We don't know much more than that. But we know they're testing the Tibetans en masse, and very pre presumably it's exactly the same kind of testing. It's a blood test, and it's a DNA test, and it's called a health check. Right. And they don't need to do the cheek swab anymore. It's, oh, no, no, it's, it's, it's the, the blood. blood it's the blood. So we don't know that. But the interesting thing about the cheek swab was just that they did that for a yes. while to show that suddenly they're interested in DNA testing, mm -hmm. that this was a new methodology. Uh, and now, is Thermo Fisher selling the kits? I don't know. But we can assume maybe not. I mean, mm -hmm. the Chinese are very good at coming up with competitors and cheaper versions of the same kind of test. They've had some years to work on it. They've had some years to work on it. So I'm not going to say one way or the other on that. But I know that Thermo Fisher, it seems, uh, was the, made the original sin here. Okay. And uh, I think it's very important, and one of the things I was getting from the ISHLT conference is that sense that they are looking for new directions in ways to show that they are serious about this. Not just you can't write in our journals. Now Congress has come through at the same time and because of what ISHLT did, I think it was almost a direct line that suddenly Congressman Smith 
and the Democrats suddenly felt confident enough to put out a bill in Congress and through the House, which they did, the Stop Organ Harvesting Act of 2023. Now that is an act we've been waiting for for years. It's a huge deal, except that the, you know, the teeth aren't that strong. They're basically transplant surgeons from China can't come to America anymore. That will pass the Senate. It will be signed by Joe Biden. That is going to be law. It is also true that it sets up a kind of a mechanism for looking after associates of this kind of thing, what we used to call organ brokers, although most of that organ brokerage is done by a thing called Google nowadays. That's the man in the trench coat. And finally, it sets up a kind of a, a research question, at least, that the government could fund. I'm a little less confident about those things actually happening because I've seen the glacial pace of, of government funding in America, okay, and I've seen it firsthand. But it's a good move. The missing part of that bill is Thermo Fisher. You know, I've worked with Uyghur Christians, I've worked with Uyghur Muslims, uh, probably a little more with Uyghur Muslims, but it's almost been 50-50 mm -hmm. uh, because they bring different skills and skill sets in to some extent. It's hard, maybe that's just luck of the draw. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I think the most important thing I've heard from in anyone was from my Uyghur fixer, who's a long-term guy I've worked with for many years. And he said, um, he said, Ethan, I'm not loyal to you. I'm loyal to my people. He took risks that yeah. were unparalleled. And I can, never for, I can never forget that. I can never really repay it. So uh, now that was, that fixer was working on? With the Tajik investigation. And he worked both on the Kazakh investigation, which was mainly into organ harvesting, uh, trying to generate possible numbers, if it could be done, about how many people were disappearing from the camps every year uh, at a certain age group. In Xinjiang, yes, that's right. And that those, if we could, if I could work out a number uh, based on witnesses, because this is the only way to approach it. There is no document out there. There's no red-headed document that's going to slip into Adrian Zenz's hands, uh, for example, you know, from, from the Politburo. This is highly, you know, this is a completely blacked out area. And the only way to approach it is to talk to people who've actually been in the camps and say how many people that you knew disappeared, that you knew of, how many people disappeared and what kind of time frame did that happen in and what age group were they and so forth. And was that following a medical exam? So it's a kind of reversal of the questions the way I'd ask them. But you can see where this is going. And I did this without trying to never mention organ harvesting so I wouldn't bias the investigation at all. In other words, I'm just looking for disappearances of a certain age group after a medical exam. And they had to be about 28 years old, otherwise I considered it invalid. In other words, they had to be like... Because? That's the age group, that is the age that the Chinese medical establishment likes to harvest people at. Your organs have stopped growing, but they've not started deteriorating. You are at the peak of your health. You'll never be better than that moment. Okay, 28, 29 years old, right in there. Um, and the Falun Gong area has also been glutted by research. There's a lot of research out in uh, the classic period was with Falun Gong. That's where the hospitals expanded mm. all over like mushrooms coming up after a spring rain. I mean, they just, 
exploded. So the, the hospitals with transplantation That's facilities. right. That's right. The, the hospitals built transplant facilities all over. Every province in China and experienced this. And people who practiced Falun Gong were also regarded as quite healthy. And so yeah. organs were perhaps more regarded They as were desirable. They were desirable. But there was one market they weren't reaching very well. And it's interesting because the Chinese were already starting to advertise to that market back in um, 2006, 2007. If you went to, uh, let's take one hospital, a very famous one, probably the biggest transplant hospital in the world, which is Tianjin Central Hospital in Tianjin, as you might expect from the name. And uh, that hospital, if you go back in the Wayback Machine, that's a method of getting to uh, looking at the internet from a few years ago, uh, sometimes more, uh, it gives you a choice. Uh, I think back in 2008 or 2007, I'm not sure about the year there, but it, it gives you a choice. It says, do you want to continue in English? Do you want to continue in Arabic? So right back then, there's a little slip that we're interested in this market of foreign foreigners because this was a, uh, a hospital which was blatantly advertising in English for lung transplants, you know, saying, get your lungs here and we do the best work. And they gave it a slightly different name. They called it a sort of an exotic name to kind of throw people off the fact that it was just Tianjin Central Hospital. It doesn't matter. This place is doing about 5,000 transplants a year that's a very high volume, okay? We've been able to determine that a couple of times. A uh, very good researcher uh, and a friend of mine, colleague of mine as well, uh, Matt Robertson was able to determine that back in the day, that they were doing about 5,000 based on the beds, the dedicated hospital beds. Uh, now, they put this ad in Arabic, this little thing in Arabic, but since then we know that the Gulf states have become major users, uh, people coming in. And are still. Absolutely are still, and this is what the partially, what the Uyghur, uh, what the Uyghur situation is about, uh, the, the, the Uyghur, the reason why the Uyghurs have become great interest. When did you start to make the connection with the camps? When Falun Gong entered the picture, it was such a mass incarceration that we're talking about Oh, eventually we're talking about sort of half a million to a million Falun Gong in detention at any given time. And that goes on for about a decade. It's a really extended period. That means, now the difference is that they were spread out all over China. The Falun Gong were arrested everywhere. In fact, there were fights between the Public Security Bureau and the armed police over who was going to get jurisdiction, who, who, who was going to get possession of that Falun Gong if they had a trial at all. If they did have a trial, sometimes the judge would be bribed. We've seen cases of that. <coughs> Why? These people are worth a lot of money. It's about a half a million. If you extract every organ, including the uh, tissues, the corneas, uh, those are worth about 15000 apiece, just those tissues. The organs, the big organs, the big selling organs are the heart and the lungs. Those are the most important. There are about 150,000 for any one of those items. And about 100,000 for the liver and uh, maybe 60,000, 50,000 for the kidneys, each kidney. Uh, that's pretty substantial. <laughs> and that's, when we're talking about that, we're talking about foreign organ tourists. The Chinese people tend to wait a lot longer for their organs, not two weeks the way foreign organ tourists do. 
and they also tend to pay about 10% of that price. So they pay significantly less. Uh, but even with foreign organ tourists, they're, you know, con countries which don't traditionally like to bargain, where the culture is not interested in bargaining as much, like the Japanese, uh, tend to pay a lot more for their organs. But it's a very controlled process. They go to very specific hospitals, like the China-Japan Friendship Hospital, that kind of place. Uh, where they literally are served sushi in their hospital beds and the, and the Chinese nurses all speak Japanese. So this is a, a well-developed procedure in China and we've known that for many years. What changed was that they started to run out of Falun Gong at the age group of 28, that kind of youthful age group, in about 2013. And something, the reason we know that is because, again, it's the reporting on the ground that matters. Falun Gong had an unusual ability to get reporting from people on the ground in China, uh, partly because they built a lot of media. Uh, I think everybody's aware of that. They built uh, Tang Dynasty, television, they built Epic Times, they built, uh, oh, they at one point they even had a publishing house and stuff like that. I mean, they, it was robust. And one of the things they had was something called Ming Hui, which was a, a really a spiritual paper. It was really oriented not towards the outside world, but towards the inner world of the Falun Gong practitioner. Okay. And in that, they published a report uh, in 2013 that in six provinces, people were reporting uh, police coming to their door, banging on the door, or just entering the, into the home, and then taking a blood test and a DNA cheek swab. Okay, now we've all heard something about DNA, right? Uh, the DNA's out there, and uh, the, uh, some people have claimed it's just for surveillance. I don't think so. That's not what the medical records say. The medical records suggest that the combination of DNA plus a good blood test is the what we call the brass ring of organ harvesting. It is the best way to get the most perfect tissue typing, the best cross-matching with somebody who's going to receive an organ. In other words, you can get almost perfect match if you use those two together. One, each one tests the other. Each one it acts as a double blind, if you like, on, on, um, to tell you how well this is gonna work. Uh, the fact is you can do, you don't need to do a cheek swab. That was the early days. You can do it from blood itself. You can do it just from one little droplet of blood. That was around 2013. Right? Yes, yeah. and just uh, shortly after that they realized they could do this just by taking a blood test and taking a drop of that blood, putting it on a DNA kit, if you like, and uh, that's what they're called, actually. And from that, you could get a terrific match. Now, the other thing, the other big issue, of course, is this age issue. And you need to use people who are young, but you've got to sedate them, but you want to sedate them to the minimal amount, because otherwise it's going to make the organ sluggish. Everything you do is about taking that organ and doing it quickly, moving it from one person, one life, to another. And uh, so this, these are the methods. Now in 2013, they're running out of Falun Gong. 2014, that's when they start the health checks across Xinjiang, across East Turkestan. They suddenly say, okay, everybody who's Uyghur needs to be tested. 
Now Han Chinese, half of, half of Xinjiang is, is Han Chinese. They've been there for a long time. They didn't have to get the tests. I guess they're all healthy. <laughs> okay, so they don't need. They didn't need any health checks. They were. And you've they were. Got good evidence. Oh, absolutely. Didn't get they did not get tested at all. Okay, and we have a, we have many different forms of evidence for that. But the main one I use is is just witnesses. I just said, we're, you know, well, they're Chinese, and you, where you live, and they'd say, yeah, and they'd say, well, why weren't they getting tested when you were getting tested? And they said they're not. They didn't have to go. It was just for Uyghurs. This was never explained, and. It didn't have to be, because these tests weren't about people's health. No one, not a single person I talked to, uh, who I interviewed in Kazakhstan, said I was tested and they discovered that I was diabetic, for example. Nothing. No one. Now, there's got to be some diabetics I talked to, in fact, okay. Uh, there's there's got to be some people who had some kind of uh, malfunction of some sort, but nobody got a single thing, not even you've got athlete's foot. I mean, nothing, okay? Okay. Uh, you've got a mild infection. You know, your white blood cell count is high. I mean, nothing, nothing. All right, so these tests were just simply to map out that population, partially for surveillance, sure, but also because it was mapping out a population which potentially down the road could be used as an organ harvesting, uh, uh, in, almost inexhaustible well. And this is a fairly large population. Think about it, with Falun Gong we're talking about half a million in, or a million in detention. And what happens with the Uyghurs? At one point it's claimed to go as high as three million by the State Department, as high as. Okay, so we're talking about a fairly large population here. Now, we are talking about people who don't drink, I mean, who drink and smoke, because most, most Uyghurs do, or a lot of them do. Even Muslim Uyghurs, who are somewhat practicing, often drink and smoke. It makes it slightly less attractive. We're talking about there's a high level of drug addiction in certain cities, Gulja, for example, among young people. Uh, those are all problems, but there's one thing that they don't do, which was very desirable. They don't eat pork. Okay, Uyghurs do not eat pork. They are, even, even Muslims who break the rules in other ways don't tend to break the rules on that one. And that, from the perspective of somebody coming out of one of the Gulf states, is very desirable. That's where the expression halal organs comes from. It's not that I've actually heard, seen that expression on an Arabic ad. I haven't. But it's very clear that if you are a Muslim, you don't want somebody who eats pork. You don't want an organ from somebody who eats pork coming into your body. This is desirable. Well, it's, it's a fact. And, and yeah. it explains, I don't say it explains everything, but it does explain partially why the uh, Muslims, uh, you know, Muslim states have been so non, have not been very supportive to the Uyghurs. A lot of these states have some blood on their hands. They know that their people have been over there to get organs, and they know why. They know why this is a desirable population. And uh, so I think it's for a lot of those states, it's much easier to just sort of write off the whole problem and just sort of say, well, you know, there's some terrorists, we're against terrorism and we don't, we don't want to be associated with this kind of thing and if China needs to crack down, they need to crack down. 
And in your interviews with people, you interview people who've survived the camps. That's absolutely yeah. everybody I was interested everybody in. I was very, I mean, I was trying to avoid the families. There are other people who do that, that do a terrific job. Gene Boonin, for example, who goes out and interviews all the families about missing people. And I think that's terrific. That is the bread and butter of human rights work. But I was interested in a more specific question, what's happening with organ harvesting. And for that, I can only really use people who are in the camps. If they were about 18, they were usually being sent off to forced labor. And that was very public. That's the other group that was going, leaving the camp. It was you know, women or young men about 18 years old, and they would even announce they're graduating. That was the term that was used, the euphemism, in the camps. And so they're going off to work in a factory uh, out east. Uh, now, in many cases, one of the things I did as kind of a control was I asked about the women in particular. Uh, I said, you know, these women you're describing, these three women, for example, somebody described in the two-month period, these three women left the camp in the middle of the night. They were just gone. Nobody talks about them. They just disappear. There's no talk of graduation or anything. It's just one day they're there and one day they're not. This is shortly after a medical test, camp-wide blood test. And I said, these three women, can you describe them for me at all? And I said, well, what, did they have anything in common? She said they were healthy. Uh, that was one of the, you know, I, I don't, I've been doing this for a long time, so I don't really get chill, uh, chill running down my spine very often, but that was one time I did. It was because we had not mentioned the word organ harvesting. We hadn't brought it up. It was nothing like that. But when she said they're healthy, that, that's what they had in common. That was very striking to me. Uh, Did any of the survivors join up? No. Make connections? No. Nobody's joining up. Nobody's making connections. These are mostly Kazakh, the witnesses I was talking to, because they get out of the camps. The Uyghurs don't. Yeah. Or they, if they get out of the camps, they, they can't leave the country. The Kazakhs often can because they were put in there kind of, not by mistake, but kind of as an afterthought. The Kazakhs were put in a little bit later. It was just sort of like, well, these people speak an incomprehensible language, much like the Uyghurs, and you know, so forth, and they have these foreign connections, and that's kind of dangerous, so we'll put them in the camps. And often, I, I really didn't run into cases of the Kazakhs being harvested for their organs. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I didn't run into any cases of it. Uh, the, so they teen, tend to be treated a little bit differently, I think. They're put in kind of a slightly different category. This often happens in camps. It happened in World War II as well. It happened in Dachau. I mean, there's very specific things. Here's your pink triangle, you're gay. Here's your, your, your work shy, you know, you're a communist, you're a Jew. You know, whatever it was. It was like there were different elements and they were treated somewhat differently, and there were hierarchies within those elements. And I think that's a little bit true here, though I didn't push on that too much. Uh, I didn't, wouldn't say the Kazakhs got, you know, got wonderful treatment. They did not. Some of the, I did meet two Kazakh women who were raped, uh, one of them publicly. Uh, so this is not, you know, this, this is not a bed of roses, okay? Yeah. But I want to say that they were terrific witnesses, actually, because they were bringing in no bias. The Uyghur cause is not really their cause. They are nomads. They are accidental witnesses. Yes, the Uyghurs are sort of beloved cousins, maybe, to some of them, but not always. And so they're not bringing in a cause. And so the fact that they were talking to me at all, that was the hardest thing, was to get them to talk to me, because they just want to forget whatever happened. 
The second thing, but at the same time, when they do talk, they're very observant. You see, what separates out the camps today from what used to be the camps in the old days, and this is true for Tibetans or anybody else, is no one can talk to each other uh, today because there's microphones everywhere. There's recording devices everywhere. And they, they will literally shout at you if you have a normal conversation. So you can say, pass the wrench, please, okay? Or could you pick that up or something like that? But you can't say much more than that. And so that means that you know, that kind of life, it's like a starving person. You know, your, your eyes get better when you're starving. Your sense of smell is enhanced because you're desperate to eat, right? And so you're, the body starts putting up. This happens, too, to people in, in these uh, terrible camps where they're kind of socially deprived. They become very observant of all kinds of tiny little differences and small things. The way a person looks, the way they might answer a question, uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, so within this, I think the memories were very clear and very unbiased, which is why I put a lot of stock in what I found at Kazakhstan. Okay, look, they had a chance to stop doing organ harvesting and to replace it with pharmaceuticals, which has always been the Chinese dream. And I know that because I used to work in business in Beijing. And pharmaceuticals is where the big money is. But COVID ruined all that. Okay? First of all, most people recognize that Really, that virus did come out of China. And if, even if it came out by accident, uh, you know, there was just a little bit of an experiment and just gone a little awry, it came out of China. They lied about it. And then they made the, the worst vaccine the world's seen. I mean, the French had a vaccine of, of similar value and they never even released it because of what's 50%? What good is that? You know, you're asking people to take a, a relatively untested vaccine, stick it in their veins. It, it, for 50% improvement, it's not very desirable. Even the Russians corrected their own vaccine very early on. You gave a keynote at a, a heart and lung transplant conference. Yeah, I was And you were saying that the, uh, the surgeons, the doctors there, everybody's taking it much more seriously because of... Well, I mean, the, look, the fact that I had to pinch myself that they invited me to be the keynote speaker. This is an absolute change. I mean, it's a completely different shift in the attitude. Mm. Up till now, the biggest impediment we had for any kind of action, people always ask, what's the action? Why aren't people taking this more seriously? You know, it was never, the press was never really the problem. Mm. I mean, the New York Times came out with stories about this years ago. You always hear, that, oh, the New York Times never comes. That's not true. Mm. There was a rogue New York Times reporter who came out and, and and did a fantastic job. Yeah, she lost her job six months later. Okay, fine. Yeah, but she did. She did do it. Uh, Didi Kirsten Tatlow. She's a hero, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but, but the bottom line here is, the politicians weren't really the problem. The politicians were waiting for the doctors to move. But the medical, the Western medical society was like, no, we're going to make China reform. We're involved in that reform process, and it didn't matter. And so once they'd involved themselves like that, they were very reluctant to say. It stalled. We're not getting anywhere. But it was obvious that that was true way back in 2012, 2013, that the process was actually stalling. Uh, and that the Chinese were beginning to lie about the amount of voluntary donations that they were getting. So that all fell apart. And, but it never fell apart officially. And to get this invitation, because they knew what I was going to say. What am I going to do? The invitation was to the, uh, what was the group name? It's called the, uh, I, 
ISHLT. It's the International Society of Heart and Lung Transplantation. It's their annual conference. This year it was in Denver. Next year it'll be in Prague. Um, <laughs> you know, this year it was in Denver, so high up in the mountains, and and uh, and uh, it was the most momentous 30 minutes of my life. Much bigger than giving a, a talk at you know, testimony to Congress, because I knew these were the people who really had all the cards. They had the ace, the handful of aces, okay? And if I could persuade them of anything, if I could at least soften them up for an explanation, that would be powerful. And I must admit, I, I put, really put my back into that, uh, and I simplified some concepts, but not, I couldn't do that too much either, because these are very, very, very clever people. Okay, yes. <laughs> they're very intelligent, and they're they're people who are used to a tremendous amount of responsibility. And well, you know, you can't just say I slipped. You know, when you're doing heart surgery, and these, they're also the top. By the way, transplant surgeons have their own totem pole, and believe me, they're the highest. Okay, heart and lung. Okay, not not yeah. kidney and tra kidney and liver. I'm not that those guys are. You know, that's an important job, sure. but these these are the the really big ones, and so I was you know, intimidated in a certain way, but uh, I think I did a good job. I know I did a good job because the, the every single president of the ISHLT came up and thanked me afterwards and uh, in glowing terms. So uh, it was, it, it really worked out. And I was able to get a lot of other people's research in there as well as my own, uh, which was important. And I presented a lot of charts and graphs, which I don't usually do, but they like that kind of thing. They don't Absolutely. like to look, they don't like to look at pictures of human beings so yeah. much. They're, they're, they, they sort of like, that's not what they're about. They're about like, come on, give us the facts. And uh, it was uh, uh, cleansing experience. But the truth is they had started this already because in September of last year, they put in an academic boycott on China and they had said, you cannot publish in the Heart and Lung, Heart and Lung Journal of Transplantation, which is the top transplant journal in the field. And they said, you can't do it. If you're Chinese, don't, don't, don't give us an article. We don't want one from you guys until this is solved, this issue is solved. It's a real testimony to your dogged well, work over the years. I, I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I'm going to have to disagree with you. I don't believe it's really based on our research. I believe this, the, the emotional backdrop to this is the critical thing, and the emotional backdrop to this is COVID. COVID. It is the pandemic. They, China lied to them. China made transplant doctors and every other doctor look like fools. So there was a complete shift in atmosphere. And yes, 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 and that's the bottom line. You're bringing me back to the important point, which was the humiliation for, for the doctors was so strong, and they, the, the feeling that we have had to carry China's water, and I think that's why maybe the most popular part of my speech was right in the ending, was where I said, look, I said, you didn't break the compact. You wanted China to reform, and you put yourselves out there for that to happen. And I said, you didn't break that compact. They broke that compact. They did it with COVID and they did it with their cover-ups. And now, you know, your job now is not to, uh, you, know, you know, play your part in China's inevitable rise. It is not your, it is not your role to, uh, you know, to make the Chinese people, to spare the feelings of the Chinese people. Your job is for these witnesses, okay? These witnesses, these refugees, these people were almost killed. This is a woman, and she now has a daughter. Thank God she lived. 
thank God there was something wrong with her organs or there was something about her blood that they didn't like because she's alive and this is her wonderful daughter and this is where they live and I didn't get into it but this is where they live and you know they've got an outhouse and they've got she's got six kids you know in this tiny little you know almost a hut but you know nonetheless she's alive she's got a beautiful smile her daughter's a beautiful girl this is you know these are your people not China, not, not this apparatus. And not, not to defend the doctors either. I mean, there are wonderful heart surgeons and lung surgeons in China who have the best intentions. I have no question about that. But they're not running things. They aren't. And this is, this, and it's, it is just, and the ones who are running things have blood on their hands. This is very tightly controlled. This is an abomination in the medical field. You know, we were concerned at that conference, at the ISHLT conference. They hired a bodyguard just for my speech. The guy said, if I treat you like a rag doll, just go with it. And I said, yeah, 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 no problem. <laughs> you, you rolled, you, you put your body in front of mine, you take the blow, you take the blow dart, I don't care. <laughs> you know, whatever. Nice guy, actually. And uh, I said, but you know, if the guy's just yelling and wants to talk and wants to do some wolf warrior thing, I mean, I, I think that's good. Like, let's, let's talk. And I'll make the point that you don't get to do this in China, so you came here to do it, right? Uh, instead, what we had was a couple, two doctors did slip in from the mainland, and they both left making a big, ostentatious, uh, you know, slamming the door and, you know, that kind of thing in a rage. Fine. I live for those moments, okay? They get me out of bed in the morning, okay? The bottom line here is this is a great tragedy for China. Thermo Fisher, I'd like to see government move on Thermo Fisher. I think we need discovery. I think we need to find out exactly what they did. And we need to block that kind of activity in the future. We also need to block one other thing. Anyone who is uh, getting involved with Chinese surgeons at this point is a collaborator in, in, a, in a terrible system. They're not a reformer. That, that's over with, okay? That failed, it stalled, it failed. Fine, maybe it had to be tried. I'm not against that necessarily. And even I was a little sympathetic to the doctors in the beginning. I said, well, you know, what's the harm? You want to go, you want to go and prostate before the Chinese and maybe it'll do some good? You never know. Sometimes maybe that works. Usually it doesn't. But, you know, you know maybe you've got to do that. But when it fails, it fails. That's it. Okay? We don't talk about failed methods anymore. So you have to reveal this stuff. And you can't just put it on the web either. You have to reveal and then you have to engage. And that's what I mean. That's why you have to go to, you know, if, if International Society of Heart and Lung Transplantation calls you, you go. You know, uh, you go, you answer their questions, uh, you tell them where you're coming from. You don't, uh, you're, you have to be an honest broker. You have to tell them what you don't know. Absolutely. Right. Uh, and so I think this is very important. In the past, there were some dangers to that. There was a tendency to sort of say we know more than we did. Uh, I didn't do that much, but I think there were some people who did. Maybe people who weren't doing primary research because people who do primary research yes. sort of know, <laughs> you know, know that we, uh, you know, we're often kind of connecting dots. Mm -hmm. But we have to be very uh, open about that and transparent. That's our side. That's, that's the contract here. Ethan Gutman's keynote address to the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation is a big deal. This elite body of surgeons made a statement saying they do not support their Chinese counterparts in procuring organs from executed prisoners. Finally, 
this horrifying practice is getting more serious international attention. The United States House of Representatives just adopted the Stop Forced Organ Harvesting Act of 2023. This specifies the imposition of serious sanctions on any person determined to be funding or facilitating the forced removal of organs. Penalties include imprisonment for up to 20 years. An amendment on organ tourism criminalising the selling of organs from China has been passed in the House of Commons in the UK. Meanwhile, the European Parliament adopted a resolution in May. They called on member states to ensure that cooperation agreements with China on health and research respect EU ethical principles. And they also called upon the EU to revisit its collaborations with Chinese institutes on transplant medicine. The British Medical Council has detailed the violations of medical ethics involved in the practice and they've said that Chinese claims of so-called consent by death row prisoners are effectively meaningless. Ethan talked to us for this podcast while he was in London for the first conference of the World Uyghur Christian Union. This was set up by Dr. Envar Bugda Toti, who is a former cancer surgeon from Xinjiang, and Dr. Envar has testified with great courage to the practice of forced organ harvesting across China. Thank you to Ethan and to Dr. Anvar. You can listen to Dr. Anvar's testimony to governments, to the sources mentioned in this podcast and the China Tribunal Judgment. They're all included online with this FNVA podcast. Thank you for listening.